Down in Medellin is our global partner, Brian Miller and his family, who have a ministry that is called Esther's Home. And at Esther's Home, they go out and find women or teenage girls who are homeless and pregnant. Uh, so they walk the streets of Columbia or go to the clinic lines of abortion clinics and they give moms a second option to have their baby. Uh, and they invite these moms and these women into these homes to have their babies and they get to live there uh, while they're pregnant, while they have the baby for about a year to two years. The team's goal going down to Medellin this summer was honestly just to love these women and love these babies. And we did that through a variety of ways. Each of these women were able to design a workshop to uh, help these women in the home at Esther's home to learn more specific skill sets. The Lord used us in ways that I never would have thought of. Through our devotions, through our life experiences, through the relationships we built, not only with the girls, but with the team. I could just see how every one of us the Lord had taken and um, honed and molded us throughout our lives to be right there at that point in time for such a time as this, because I really felt like the girls and the team were handpicked by the Lord to be right there at that moment with what they had experienced in their lives. So in Columbia, it's really awesome that I got to use the skill of what I do for work. I opened up a salon and I called it MADE, and it is based out of Psalms 139. So I called it MADE just to have people embracing who they're called to be. And so it's just really awesome that I got to use those skills and helping them just develop um, hair cutting skills or just talents that they can hopefully use later. But then also it's awesome how God just worked into allowing me to use that as a devotional piece too. That the devotional that I led, we based it out of Psalms 139 and we got to talk about their gifts and talents and how they're using that. So it was really awesome. We had devotion with the girls in the morning right after breakfast and then we had devotion time again in the evening with them and that is truly when I felt like we got to connect with them and connect with the Lord and with each other and those were just moments that really um, affected my heart and the way that I looked at God's Word because of the way they looked at God's Word and it was so neat to see how across different cultures and even languages that we all serve the same God and we all can learn and grow together. God is everywhere. He's not just in West Virginia speaking English to us. He is in, he's everywhere. He's in South America speaking Spanish. It just, it just stuck out. It's just like, he's everywhere. You know, we just think of him being right here to us, you know, to me. He's, he's, he's for me, but he's everywhere. I really felt God calling me to this particular trip with the girls and, um, I think the biggest thing that he taught me was his faithfulness and like he equipped you where he calls and for me not to rely on my understandings. If you feel him calling you to go on the trip, there's a reason he's calling you because he's prepared you through your life and through your experiences to experience even more and to grow more with him when you're on this trip serving others. I think we forget that there's an underlying brokenness in all of us, that God is working and moving. And when we allow ourselves to be a part of these trips, to step into these vulnerable places, uh, He works on us just as much as we are serving and loving on the people that we are working with. 
Well, those are pretty cool, huh? Yes. Hey, and if you have not ever joined us on one of our Go Global projects, I, I really think you need to spend some time thinking about that over the next year here, to come and be a part of that, both for the impact that we have when we go around the world, but the impact that God puts in, into you. Um, as, as my team got back from Germany uh, a week after uh, the trip to Colombia, um, that our, our experience speaks a lot of the same things. What God did in us, um, equal uh, to what God did through us that is incredible. And I would really challenge you to start thinking through that right now and praying over that. Well, good morning, church. We are so glad to be in this place worshiping together. Um, whether you're joining us online, we're in vacation season, so I know we're all over the place, and it is incredible that we can continue to worship together through the online platform that we have there. If you're a guest with us, we are so glad that you have decided to spend this morning with us. My name is Blair. I'm one of the pastors here. And we don't say this pridefully, but we really believe that in this place, you can have an encounter with God. And that's our prayer for every single person who walks through here whether they call River Ridge their home or not, that you would encounter God and as a result of it, be able to know what your next step in your journey with him is all about. And so that's our prayer this morning uh, as we get ready to get going with the message here in just a second. But before we do that, um, I wanna tell you about a quick announcement that's happening. Uh, as part of our, our very newest um, initiative around the church with Foster West Virginia, we're inviting all past and current families who are part of foster adoption or even kinship care uh, to join us for our first ever Foster West Virginia support group here at River Ridge Church. Um, during this time, it'll be a time of conversation and discussion around practical ways that River Ridge Church can come along families to support them, whether they're in one of those foster relationships or an adoption family or even in one of the kinship families. So we wanna invite you to mark your calendars and come out and join us on the 26th at 6.30 over in the Hangout. And so if you're not familiar with the Hangout is, it's on the other side of the South Auditorium. You'll find it there. And just a better note, um, childcare will be provided. So we might've just filled up the class just with that little one nugget right there. So come join us on the 26th and be a part of that to help us know how we can support our families in that way. All right. We have been walking through the book of Judges over the last several weeks here. We haven't been able to hit every single uh, chapter in the book of Judges, and we haven't even been able to hit every single judge that's there. Um, but we're trying to hit as many as we could. Last week, um, Andy left us off at the end of chapter nine, looking through the life and death of Abimelech, who we find at the end of his life gets euthanized after a woman throws a stone at him and hits him in the head, but not wanting to be killed by a woman for some reason, he asked some guy to kill him instead. And so that's where we left that guy. Starting off in chapter 10, we kick off into the next chapter and we see two more judges, they get represented there, but we know very little about them other than one was a judge for 22 years and one was a judge for 23 years. Before we get to our next major judge that's named Jephthah, who we find in chapters 11 and 12. Now, like I said, we will not be able to hit every single judge and Jephthah's one of those judges. Andy told you early on that there are both good judges and bad judges that we find in the book of Judges and Jephthah would fall in in the category of a bad judge. So as you grab your right now media studies and you're spending time and you're looking at that and the questions pop up as you read about Jephthah, it will be really helpful that you use that right now media study. Or if you have questions that you wanna get answered, you can come to Andy or myself or your home group leader and check out what that's all about. But when you see Jephthah and the questions pop up in chapter 11, which 
This might be my new tactic for getting people to read their Bible, just to say how crazy this story is, because I think some people are probably already flipping around to figure out, who in the world is Jephthah? What is this guy all about? So that's our next plan there. But Jephthah, don't turn to Jephthah right now. Read about it later. We're going to stop in chapter 10 instead, because what happens in chapter 10, the writer of Judges kind of pushes pause there for a second. Um, and ultimately, God wants to teach us something in chapter 10 that's really significant before he gets back into the historical narrative of all these judges in order. And so we don't want to miss out on what he's teaching us here. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Judges 10, we're going to start in verse 6. But before we get there, let me pray for us this morning. God, I thank you for this moment and this time. God, I pray as we open your word and we hear from you, we trust the truth that your word penetrates the heart in ways that other things can't that you hit us exactly where you want to hit us. And we believe and trust your words that say that your word never goes out void. It will always do action. Uh, God, my commentary about your words is helpful maybe a little bit for note purposes or thinking about it, but you penetrate the heart. And so God, I ask that and trust that today uh, as we open your word together. Thank you for being in this place. We love you, God. Amen. All right, so verse six, we're gonna start in verse six. Check this out. It says, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Again and again, here we are back in the same cycle that we've been experiencing. God rescues the Israelites. The Israelites experience peace for a little while. Eventually, they turn back to the other gods and start doing evil again. Moses adamantly in the, warned the Israelites of the possibility of this in Deuteronomy 6. And Deuteronomy 6 is this very significant passage for the Jewish, the Jewish people. It's known as the Shema. The, the Shema is the word, Hebrew word that means hear, or it means listen. It's literally the centerpiece of all of their morning and evening prayers. And it says this, listen to what it says here. It says, hear Shema, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, them as the commandments that God has given them, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey, Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. You shall talk of the them when you sit in your house and when you walk by your way and when you lie down and when you rise you shall bind them as a sign on your hands and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates why did Moses stress this so much to the people I believe it's because God pressed it so hard upon him because he knew what the possibility was going to be for his people. He knew that they would be distracted by all the things that were around them, that they would be drawn to see these other things and lose sight of who God was. Hundreds of years later, Paul is addressing the same thing in his letter to the Romans. And he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. 
See, they, they exchanged the glory of God for images of men and of animals. And we look at these people, both the Israelites, and we look at the Romans and say, what in the world are they doing? How could intelligent people turn from God? How could these intelligent people who actually know God so easily walk away from him? But the Israelites were not attracted uh, to these, these, these gods because they were beautiful images or because they really liked the decoration of them. They were attracted to them because they were associated with what was, what was associated with the pagan deity. Baal, the one that's mentioned there often, the weather god, was associated with financial success. Ashtoreth, the goddess of fertility, was associated with love and sex and romance and children. And for the other gods of the neighboring countries, the neighboring nations around them, it was a matter of conforming to the world that was about them, the popular culture, and just doing what everyone else was doing. See, Israel's worship of the neighboring gods reminds us that the people of God are often in danger of worshiping what the world worships. The people were worshiping these idols and erecting these things because they represented good things that they wanted to be about, that they wanted in their own lives. Children and love, a legacy to leave for generations afterwards. See, when we see the word idol or when we think about the word idolatry, we think of these little wooden statues and think these people are nuts. But we don't think about what they really represent. See, we don't really struggle with erecting Asherah poles, but we do create Facebook walls and we create Instagram reels, things that we celebrate and want others to see, things that have our attention, our time, our resources, things that we want to, people to associate us with or that we want to be associated with. I think one of the main points for this message this morning that I would love to drive home is that idols are usually good things that become God things in our lives. Over the last couple of years, Carol has been teaching me about Enneagram. Um, I'm not hearing quite as much about it lately, but six, 12 months ago, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing about the Enneagram. I mean, it was all over the social medias. If you're not familiar with it, because you've been living under a rock, it's basically this personality typing on how people inter, inter, uh, interpret the world and their emotions. One characteristic of the Enneagram is it identifies what motivates people to behave the way they do. Uh, according to Enneagram, there are nine different personality types, nine major personality types, and then there are variations of those same types depending on the person. And it's very interesting as you look more into it. So if you've ever explored it, you're, you, you get more and more into it because you find out that there's a lot of truths to the personalities that are on there. But we've come to believe, Carol and I, that I am most likely a nine, okay? Everyone who really knows Enneagram is already trying to measure me up based on that information alone. They're trying to say, okay, that says a lot about him. Okay, I agree with a nine or I don't. But for you non-Enneagrammers or non-Enneagramists, I don't know what Enneagrammers call themselves, I don't know, uh, a nine personality is, is called the peacemaker. And they want to create harmony in their environment. 
to avoid conflicts and tensions, to preserve things as they are, to resist whatever would upset or disturb them. My motivation, as I look at this, my motivation plays out in all different kinds of ways, even to the smallest thing, for an example of like where, where we're gonna eat. So for me, because of my personality type, in all honesty, we could eat at my least favorite restaurant every single time, and I wouldn't care as long as everybody's getting along, I am awesome. In fact, if we're eating at fast food, I don't care if we go to four different restaurants to give everybody exactly what they want, as long as everybody is working and there's not disturbance in the harmony, I'm good to go. Now this drives my wife Carol nuts, and so in order to keep the harmony in our marriage, sometimes I avoid doing that and we just go to the one place. I don't really like to choose the restaurant we go on on vacation at all either because I'm so concerned that if I pick the wrong restaurant and people are upset, then we lost harmony there. And I probably shouldn't have said that because my entire family comes to River Ridge and they're River Ridgers and we're getting ready to go on vacation on Friday and so I might have just opened something up there. But harmony in itself is an awesome thing. It really is. God even calls us to maintain harmony. Romans 12 specifically commands us to live in harmony with one another. But harmony can become my idol. You probably wouldn't think anything of it if you came to my house and you saw an art piece on the, on the wall that said something about harmony. Or if I posted something on Facebook all about keeping harmony and doing this in order to keep in harmony. You might even probably like it. But there is a possibility that I could choose the pursuit of harmony over God. See, it's a good thing. But when it becomes a God thing or the biggest priority in my life, then it's an idol. Similarly, the Israelites were actually commanded to go and to multiply the entire earth and fill the earth, but not to the point where fertility became their God, or not to the point where fertility became what they worshiped alongside of or instead of God himself. This might be a helpful tool for us this morning, that how do I know when something moves from a good thing and switches over to a God thing in my life? Here are five things you can think about that you can ask yourself about the good things in your life. One, it causes me to disobey God. Like in, in the sense of make sure you don't miss the gathering together of the body. God commanded us to come together as the church and to gather together and worship together. And a good thing becomes a God thing when I can't obey that anymore. Do not lie. If, if I gotta protect my comfort, which becomes my good thing in my life, and I have to lie in order to keep my comfort, then my good thing became a God thing in my life. Tithe, we're called, commanded to tithe, to give generously. If my good thing becomes a God thing in my life, I can't obey that command anymore. Forgive, my idol of pride or being seen as great is causing me not to be able to forgive someone, whatever that is. Go into the world and make disciples of all the nation. That Jesus left this command for his disciples to follow. But if your idol, your good thing in your life is causing you not to be able to follow that command of God, then it's an idol in your life and it's become a God thing in your life. Another way we could look at it, if, if it passes maybe that thing, it gives me the most excitement about my future. 
When I think of the good things in my life, are they the things that I get most excited about, the things I wanna talk about with other people, the things I daydream about with other people, the things I think about all the time? Are they my, the most exciting thing about my future? Is it what I fear losing the most? For me, often, harmony is a very significant thing, and I fear losing it. For some of us, it's comfort, a comfortable life that we've experienced. Money, a job, a family, reputation. What do you fear losing more than anything else? It's what I envy that others have that I don't have. Or five, it's what I most enjoy spending time and money on. You can follow those two resources all the time and see what the good things are that have become God things in our life. Okay, Blair, you are making a massive deal about this. I think you're being a little too extreme. But the truth about God's chosen people, the Israelites, is that eventually as these things got added in, the scripture says that they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. I think we can see how this happens. It wasn't a moment of declaration where they said, we are done with God. It was a slow crowding out of God's place in their lives. They had the commandments up on their walls. They had placed them there. They had them posted on their, on their doorposts. But when they started adding a little of the culture here in this corner, and they started adding a little of the, another culture over here, God was just another thing in their house, and another thing in their house to the point where he wasn't even noticed anymore. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus directs this exact same thing. He, he says the same thing. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will become devoted to the one, and as a result, despise the other. Jesus is saying, you don't have the capacity to serve two things. Something is going to get crowded out of your life, or you're gonna be brought to a place where you're gonna have to choose between one or the other. Verse seven, we see what happens as a result of this. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. God sold them. That word sold is some really strong language there when we think about it. It's been used a couple of times throughout the book of Judges as we've been walking through it, but it brings up this picture of exchanging ownership of something. Like if I sell my car to someone else, the, what that means is I no longer have a responsibility of what's done to it. I no longer get a say of what happens in the life of this car because it's not my car anymore. And what this is saying is that the Israelites didn't belong to God anymore. They weren't his people. These other nations can do what they want with him. God is saying, they don't want me, so I'll give them what they want. Paul, again, to the Romans, is going on with that same thing of exchanging the immortal God for images, and therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. See, there's a consequence to idolatry. And the consequence for idolatry is actually idolatry. Because you will become enslaved to the other things in your life. 
Once something, something or someone or something else has a high place in your life, you're gonna take care of it. And here's a major truth. Idolatry and slavery go hand in hand. Idolatry leads to slavery. Slavery leads to idolatry. Tim Keller put it this way, listen to this. He said, so God says to the person who worships money, if you wanna live for money instead of me, then money will rule your life. It will control your heart and it'll control your emotions. If you wanna live for popularity instead of me, then popular acclaim will rule and control you. If you want another God besides me, go ahead. This is where people get the concept, this is where we get the concept of free will from. Free will is this wonderful thing because it's really difficult for us to understand how if we, we are to love God, if God makes us love him, how that can actually be this loving thing. But God wants to give us an opportunity to choose or to not choose him. But re, free will is, is actually a really scary thing at the same time because when we choose idolatry, we're stuck in that choice. And idolatry will cost us a lot. It'll cost us three things at least. One of those things is it's gonna cost us God's purpose for your life, God's purpose for my life. I believe this is why people who are trying to serve two things or many things don't have good purpose in their life. See, God created each of us and he created us for a purpose and he created us for a unique purpose actually. But when I'm serving two things or many things, I can't know and I can't follow God's purpose for my life. I become very confused on what my purpose is and I go searching for other things that allow me to find my purpose uh, in, in some kind of conglomeration of the things that I have put in my life that have highest, high places in my life. I try to find my purpose in being successful, but at the same time as a child of God. But Jesus said, you can't do that. You don't have the capacity to do that. In fact, he commands us this way. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things that you wanna go after will be added to you. Jesus warns against the and. We're to seek God and he will add the things, the other things. Not seek both things. I hope that makes sense. Two, it'll cost you in a way that it will exhaust you. Double-mindedness double is not a word we use often very much anymore, but it just wears people out. I know for me, when I fully gave my life over to God when I was in high school. It was at a point when I was wrestling between two things, being a follower of God, but also um, being loved by a lot of people at the same time. It wore me out trying to live the Christian life and at the same time do anything I could possibly do to make people laugh. I was confused, but I was also tired. But when I encountered Jesus the way I did on that day, a peace came about me that no longer did I need to go after two things, but I had one thing. Three, it'll also cost you what you need more than anything else, which is God, which is a relationship with your creator and your savior. Our greatest need is to be in fellowship with the one who made us, who knows us, who loves us, but God gives us a choice in the matter. It says God gave the people 
over to the nations. He sold them to the nations. They were no longer his to protect and care for. And as a result, we find that the nations oppressed the Israelites. Verses eight and nine, if you read on, paint this picture of the worst oppression that they had experienced as of yet. It was the worst in, in intensity. They, it says they were shattered. It actually said that they were crushed. It was greater in the longevity of it. It was 18 years long, and it was the first time that the peace that followed it was gonna be shorter than the oppression that they experienced. And it was also greater in its totality. For the first time, it involved all of Israel. Both sides of the Jordan were now being oppressed. And as a result, verse 10 says, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we've sinned against you, God, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians? Did I save you from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. The people cry out to God and they tell God all about their sin. Pretty much a statement more than anything. God, we've sinned against you. We've, we've started worshiping these other idols. The Lord responds with the history that they've had together. The history that he had had with the Israelites. I'm the one who saved you from all of those nations. The Egyptians, the Amorites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Mayanites. Interestingly enough, this is basically the list of the nations of the idols represented in verse six. But you, you left me. Israelites, you left me. You have chosen other things above me. You belong to them now. I sold you because you wanted them. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen and let them save you now. Let them save you if they can. You've placed your faith in money and for success to be your savior. It's what you serve. Let it rescue you from your peace, your lack of peace and the oppression you're experiencing. You've made happiness your God. Let it rescue you from the oppression you have. You've chosen comfort to be your savior. It's what you made master of your life. Let it rescue you now. Because the consequence of idolatry is actually idolatry. Verse 15, we see something else change though. And the people of Israel said to the Lord in response to what he said, we have sin. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us today. So they put away their foreign gods from among them and they served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. The people cry out again to God in the same way, but at this time it's in a different way. They acknowledged their sin and they recognized that God had every right to punish them. Because God, because he is God and they had exchanged the glory of God and started worshiping other things in its place. God, we still wanna be rescued. We're still in this same place, but we realize we don't deserve it. So do with us whatever you think is best. You are God. 
But they didn't just say empty words in that moment either. We see that they removed all the foreign gods from amongst them and then they served the Lord. It's almost like they're saying, no matter what happens to us, we know you are God and no other thing is worthy of worship. There's a real difference between verses 10 and verse 15. And this is what real repentance looks like. It isn't just an acknowledgement of the, sin, of, of the sin, but the word repent actually means that you turn 180 degrees away and you go the other direction from it. And that's what we see is happening here. They didn't just acknowledge their idols, they got rid of them and went the other direction. And when the people repented and they called out to God to be saved, he couldn't bear their misery any longer. Andy shared this with us a couple weeks ago. In 2 Peter, it says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It wasn't God's desire for the Israelites to perish. He wants everyone to experience the peace that he offers. But some choose otherwise and they go their own way. But as soon as they repented by turning from their foreign gods, his response was just like the father of the prodigal son when he came home. What are some things that we can learn from this passage. I think there are a couple of things, but one of the ones I wanna to point to is that God is the only way to true peace. The Israelites, just like we are today, were looking for their peace in different things. They were looking for them in many things. They were looking for them in their children. They were looking for them in love. They were looking for them in, in success and having a legacy to be left. And each of those things are wonderful in and of themselves. But when they're the end goal, they will not provide what we are looking for. We cannot be fulfilled in any of these things. Only God is capable of truly doing that. Like them, we have to be brought to a place of true acknowledgement. God allowed the Israelites to actually hit rock bottom in their, in their journey. But it was for their good that they would see the truth. They weren't seeing it when they were being successful and when they were at peace. It was only in their oppression that they recognized that the other things were not God. It's not enough, though, to only acknowledge this truth, but we must repent as well. Acknowledgement isn't enough. We must repent in order to be saved. But the message to the Israelites throughout the whole Old Testament is still the same message for us today. And in 2 Chronicles, it says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. I believe that this can be a moment for us I believe that this can be an important moment for us today. So we wanna give you some time to stop and think, some time to reflect on the idols that we have in our lives, things that we have placed alongside of God, things that are in that same place that are, that are warring for our attention, for our obedience, for our service, for recognition of who is master of our life. Randy is gonna play a song here in just a second. You are welcome to stand and sing. The words will be on 
the screens. It is a song of declaration. It is a prayer of declaration to God himself. Or you can sit down and stay reflecting on what God is teaching you uh, about idols that are in our lives. However the Holy Spirit leads you, take this moment. Oh. 
Father God, I thank you for the truth that you are in our presence and that we are in your presence. God, I pray against the idols that are in our life right now, things that have been placed in too high of a place in our life and they have become equal with you or that we stopped and we pushed you out completely as a result of it and stopped serving you. God, I pray that over our church today that we would cast out all of these idols, we would cast out these good things that have become God things in our life and that we would put you where you are, worthy of our worship. You're the creator of all things, God, and so we lift this up to you and ask that you would transform our hearts today that we might be able to follow you truly and fully. We love you, God. Thank you for what you did for us on the cross and gave us life. Amen. Hey, that's gonna conclude our services today. So glad that you guys were here to join us this morning. Hope you have a great week. Love you. See you next week.